Welcome to Kingdom Perspective Broadcast, the teaching ministry of Dr. David Ogaga. We believe that this message is going to open up the seals and cause you to have a deeper revelation into the Word of God that will make you see beyond the letters in the Word. Here is Dr. David. I have decided to call these Bible language in numbers. Bible language in numbers, and there are reasons why I changed that. I will make you see that as we progress. Well, I have to change this from biblical numerology to Bible language in numbers. So this is going to be part number one of this series. Uh, one thing you have to understand that the Bible is a book of history and prophecy. That is very, very important that you, you first get that. It's a book of history and prophecy. Uh, numbers used will either be literal or symbolic. They can either be literal or symbolic. When you read numbers, come across numbers in the Bible, maybe one, two, three, on your figures. And we do know also that the the Hebrew alphabet they also has to do with numbers. So um, that is what you should understand. That's why it's important for you to understand uh, when you're reading the Bible, you come across numbers, you'll be able to decode some of the things that God is trying to say. Now, when you're reading and you come across numbers, uh, the meaning actually of revealing the context in which such a number is used. The meaning of numbers are revealed in the context in which those numbers are used. So if you read number five, number six, whatever number you're reading, the, re- the meaning of that number is revealed in the context in which you are reading. Uh, at a particular time, certain numbers appear often in the Bible. And, and very illustrative, figurative, or symbolic. Most, most often, the numbers appear uh, in a figurative sense or in a symbolic way or very illustrative, just to illustrate certain things. So you have to understand all of these things. You reading, you come across number. Is it illustrative? Is it figurative? Is it symbolic? What, what is it that the number is trying to point out when you read? This is very important. Now, um, when you come across numbers in such way, the understanding of what you're reading is very significant. And, and, and again, it is vital to the test. What I mean is the significance of the number that you are seeing, whether it is symbolic, illustrative, or figurative, is very significant to the content. So when you read and you come across something, you should be able to decode. That's the excess of this teaching that we're going into. It's going to be a little bit deep, but it's something that you need to chew. Um, people have told me, one or two persons have told me, we need you to teach a little bit more of uh, what we can take and you teach only disciples some of the things that you are teaching and uh, by that they mean they need me to talk about maybe your daily life all of all of those things but I know they are fine but I have a, a witness in my spirit to teach the whole counsel of God I'm, I'm trying to equip you to be who you are supposed to be and not just you know some daily talks or whatever as the case may be that may look a little bit motivational or whatever. We call that maybe soft something and all that. But for you, as far as I'm concerned, 
and need to equip you to be a disciple, a full-grown person into the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's my concern. Amen. So I, I, I also believe that God will help your spirit to come up with some of the things that I'm going to be talking about. Um, now, it's important for us to understand that the Bible number is not really the same with numerology. That's why I was trying to tell us that I changed something from numerology to by, I mean, uh, 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 numbers in Bible language or Bible language in numbers instead of numerology. Um, you see, numerology is often connected with occult practices, right? They are attached to figures in, 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 in occultism, occult practice, you know, psychic practice, all of those things. Numbers are often decoded or used to deliver their messages, you know, in terms of their combination and numerical value. That's why you're dealing with occult numbers when people use occult. Now, have you heard sometimes people tell you that number 13 is uh, evil? Have you heard that? Huh? Yeah, people often say number 13 is evil. You understand that? So sometimes when you people, they're trying to get a, a, a house and the number is number 13, they want to avoid it. Because of the understanding they got in from occult uh, a mystical application of number 13. Okay. So numerology has its origin in Babylon. You know, ancient Babylon, that's where all of those things came from. And along with other forms of divination which are condemned in the Bible. Let's look at the book of Deuteronomy. And chapter 18, let's look at verse number 10. Deuteronomy verse, um, 18, verse number 10. We can take this from perhaps uh, a simpler translation. Anyone you want Deuteronomy 18, verse number 10. The idea of what God was trying to say here was that the children of Israel should live a holy life separated unto him, not to be involved in the practices of the people they are going to get into their land. You know, they were going to the land of Canaan, all of those people, and even the surrounding. They don't want them to be part of these. As a matter of fact, if you take time to read the book of Jeremiah, uh, it tells us there are people who practice astrology and uh, horoscope. You know, have you, some of you, have you taken time, maybe once in a while or before now, have you tried to figure out what your star is? Maybe you are Leo or you are Sagittarius or you are, you understand that? Right. So you go and read your star and sometimes every month or every week they tell you what your star is saying, isn't it? Right. Now, but if you watch closely, you discover that, that that's a means of controlling you. That's a means of uh, dictating your life, what it looks like. But you see, we are sitting together with Christ in heavenly places, and that's to say we are above the stars. Are you with me? If we are sitting together with Christ in heavenly places, we are sitting above the stars. And so the stars are not meant to control us. I don't know if you understand what I mean. That you draw life from the Spirit. You draw life from the revelations of God. You draw your leading, like the Bible says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God. And on a daily basis, He gives you instruction from the world as you study, as you pray. So, but you see, we still see people go to restart to find out what their star is saying, what tomorrow says, or the future says, in a horoscope. And God is against that in the true sense. Amen? 
Yeah, God is not so much in love with that. And like I said, we're above the stars. We should be, we can't allow the stars to control us anymore. Hallelujah. Are you with me? Right. Okay, so here the Bible says, um, for example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a bond offering. Hmm? All right. I don't want to say something on that. I do not let your people practice fortune telling. Now, fortune telling comes from even star reading or the Oja Bold or card, tarot card. I don't know. Are you following what I'm saying? All right. Then, in our own native way, people throw cowries on the floor and they tell you stuff. And the Yorubas, you know, what do you call it? Uh, the affairs, yeah, they tell you your future, your destiny. Don't be involved in that. That's what the Bible says. All right. Then it says, or oh, use sorcery or interpret omen signs. Signs. Uh, I read a book in those days uh, before I, I got to know the Lord. And how that, if you have dogs around you, I, mean, I don't mean dog, I mean dog. The, you understand that? You have dog around you. There is a way they study the dogs and begin to tell you how that the dogs are speaking. And they begin to tell you what probably will happen and so on and so forth. In fact, some people can tell you just looking at the dog and the behavior of the dog and begin to tell you it's going to rain. Those are old men, signs. You know, you don't use these things. <laughs> okay, in our own way. Have you heard the story? Oh, do you know? Sometimes you walk in and you kick your foot on a stone. What did they tell you? So that's a bad sign, isn't it? You were just careless. The stone was there. You were just careless. It's not a bad sign. Nothing bad sign there. Hallelujah. Now, these are all men. We have a lot of all these things that we try to practice. God said, no, you don't have to go that way. And then, or engage in witchcraft. Uh, I don't want to go into all of that anyway. What we look at witchcraft is a little bit different from what the Bible actually calls witchcraft anyway. Alright? Okay. Uh, witchcraft actually means, in the true sense, is controlling somebody against his will. That's witchcraft. Is that okay? Uh, witchcraft is not somebody who flies in the night alone. You understand what I'm saying? Right. You see, for instance, we know somebody like Jezebel in the Bible was more or less practicing witchcraft. What was that? Not because of the gods that they were worshipping, but because she had such influence over the society, the throne, the husband. You understand that that's witchcraft. When you have unnecessary control, and if you try to manipulate people by your feelings and all that, you are practicing witchcraft on the people. Because you're controlling the people against their will. That's witchcraft. So it's not necessarily something that, you know, people practice. But anytime witchcraft is mentioned, your own thinking is, doesn't fly in the night. No. You can be practicing witchcraft by the way you behave in relation to people. Alright. The next thing says, or can spell or function as a medium or psychics or call for the spirit of the dead. You know, try to inquire. Is that okay? Right. All of this thing God said, don't practice them. So I'm saying, all of this thing plus numerology that uh, people already practice, they all relate to some of the traditions of these people uh, that God said we don't need. 
So we find that anybody who practices these things is something that God hates. God hates all of these practices and God kind of uh, feels very decisible to such individual, as a matter of fact. You know, it, it, it could be as it were like to the children of Israel, other nations are practicing them, but he was saying you should not be involved in them because you're a separate people. You need to know anything about yourself. You need to know anything about your future. I should be the one to reveal it to you. Praise the living God. Are you there? And in fact, from this passage, this is one of the major reasons God had to drive out the people from the land so that Israel can occupy the land. Because they don't see God as their God. They can't relate to God. They have other means. So God was saying, now I'm taking away these people that you occupy the land. Therefore, don't go practice what they were practicing. Praise the Lord. Amen? Alright. So in our study, therefore we're going to be examining um, this figurative use of certain numbers that are frequently used in the Bible. There are some numbers that are frequently used more in the Bible. I won't be able to, you know, cover all numbers, but the ones that are very basic, the ones that are very oftenly used, we're going to discuss them. And then it could open you up to all the uh, scriptures, ability, what I mean, to interpret numbers when you read them in the Bible. So the first one we're going to deal with number one. Number one. The first number we have to deal with is number one. Praise the Lord. Now this number, number one, when used figuratively, conveys the thought of singleness. Something that is single. As well as unity and agreement in purpose and action. When one, when, when we talk about one, we're talking about singleness. Right? Of thoughts. Singleness of thoughts. Also unity and agreement in purpose and action. When you talk about one. Singleness of thoughts, unity of purpose and agreement in terms of action. Is that okay? That's number one. Other things we're going to see now. But let's first of all read Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse number 4, King James. Hallelujah. Here was Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. Is that okay? The Lord our God is one Lord. Why do you think God is saying this to Israel? Is basically to cause them to see their God completely different from the Trinitarian God, the Trinitarian gods of other nations. Other nations they have different gods that are made up with our God they are worshiping. But he's trying to make them understand that the God we worship is one God. That is why 
when you say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, that is Trinitarianism. The true sense of it is what we have is not Trinity but triunity. Triunity, not Trinity. When you say God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you're talking of Trinitarianism. Three gods in one. We don't have three gods in one. We have one God manifested in three personalities. Our God is one Lord. Not two, not three, one. Amen. Let me give you this simple illustration. When you look up in the afternoon, the time, you can see the sun coming down. Now you have the sun. You have the mega rays and the light, and then you have the rays coming down. The mega rays and the light and the rays, they are coming from the sun. They are like three dimensions, but it's one sun coming forth. Okay, let me illustrate it. You, listening to me now, you have spirit, you have soul, you have body. Are you three people? Huh? You are one person, but you are made up of three dimensions. That doesn't make you three people. Are you getting what I'm saying? This is the strength of this statement. Our God is one God, not three. So the truth says there is nothing like Trinity. It's triunity. Three united in one. Now, let me illustrate again. I have a father. Biologically speaking, I'm saying now. I have a wife. And I have a child or children. To my father, I am a son. To my wife, I am a husband. To my children, I am a father. Does that make me three people? Did you understand that? It's me manifesting in three dimensions based on relationship. So to my children, I'm a father. To my father, I'm a son. To my wife, I'm a husband. But it's still me. Is that making sense to you? So one is, is what we're saying is, it speaks of singleness of purpose, singleness of agreement in terms of thoughts. So you see me, even as father, son, and husband, my thoughts are me. Is that okay? Right. My thought works with my mind, my spirit, and my body. Every bit of me, my soul, my mind, and my body, they are all one in my thinking. What if I think I think is what my body works on? Are you done with me? So my body agrees, my soul agrees with my spirit, and I can do whatever thing I'm doing. It's one purpose. But three different personalities, if you will. Does it make any sense? All right. Look at Isaiah 42, verse number 8. 
Isaiah 42 verse number 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another. Neither my praise to graven images. I am the Lord. That is my name. You know what I'm trying? God is trying to say, I am alone. I don't share my glory with anybody. Not with graven image. Amen? Praise the Lord. So, there is oneness in purpose and activity between God and Jesus Christ. The Son. For instance, the book of John. Look at John chapter 10 verse number 13. Agreement in purpose, thought and action. The Father and the Son are one. I am my Father, I want one. Singleness of purpose, singleness of action in agreement as to what we want to do. So in terms of redemption, for instance, is in agreement with the Father. They are one. That's oneness. So we are saying number one, speak of singleness of purpose, agreement, and action. And Jesus said, I am a Father, a one. I'll leave that with me. Go again now to John 17 verse 21. John 17 verse 21. And Jesus was praying. And he said, That they all may be one. As thou father are in me. And I in thee. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. What is that supposed to mean? That means the disciples of Jesus. Jesus himself and the father. Should become one in thought, action, purpose. Now, these are three people already. But the prayer is that they might be one. What is that supposed to mean? Whatever thought is supposed to be in the mind of God should be your thoughts. Whatever desire God has in terms of the purpose should be your purpose. Are you following that? That's a part of one. And Jesus is praying, bring them to become one with us. What he means to say is, may they not have their own agenda separate from our agenda. May their mind be so synchronized with our thoughts and purposes. I came here for the purpose of redemption. I came here for the purpose of saving mankind. I came here for the purpose of atonement. Let that same thing that drove me down here, which is in your mind, be in their mind. Are we here? Now, I'm, I'm telling you the power of one. As we begin to say one, two, three. There's a power of one. So get the point right. What it does say is this. Singleness of purpose, action, thoughts, and agreement. Is that okay? And Jesus is praying and saying, Oh, I need my disciples to be one with us. Even as I am with you in this time of oneness. And I'll tell you so that you can understand. Now if you come to this place, that is why... Just give me John, John uh, chapter 2, let me see, John chapter 2, if that's what I'm looking for. About this number 1. Hallelujah. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. The next verse says, And both Jesus was called, and his disciple to the feast, or to the marriage. Jesus wouldn't go without his disciples. 
There is a purpose here which has to do with the husband and the wife. The church is to Jesus as a wife. He is the husband. So the husband is not going to go without the wife. Singing as a purpose, agreement, and action. Praise the Lord. And so you see that both Jesus was called and the disciples to the marriage. Jesus wasn't called alone, but and the disciples. Oneness. And this will reveal to us later when we get there. Let's turn to the book of Genesis. The two shall be one flesh. One. So when we come to God, symbolic, figurative usage, two becomes one. Instead of one becoming two, two becomes one. That is God's mathematics for you. Are we together? <laughs> so, in this context, you can't see Christ without the church. Because Christ is the head, the church is the body. Singleness of action, purpose, talks, and agreement. It's so vitally important you understand the language of one as used in the Bible. Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28. And so here I say there is neither Jew... No Greek, there's neither born nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Singleness. You are all one. Hallelujah. And so, this illustrative use, like I just said in the book of John, chapter 2, is actually used. In terms of marriage, like I said before. So let's go to Galatians, I mean Genesis 2, verse number 24. Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be what? One flesh. Two becoming one. That's the power of unity. The power of purpose. And that is why in the true sense, if we understand this scripture in the power of one, <laughs> we will do stuff. You see, remember in Genesis 11, the Bible says, those trying to build a tall of Babel, that they will be able to achieve because they are in one mind. You can see the power of one. So, husband and wife, if you truly live as one, you could do stuff. Because that power that comes out of it. Amen? Are you listening to me? I need you to get it because very important. Okay. Look at this. I mean, Ephesians 5, verse 28. Ephesians 5, 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife, loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the law of the church. 
For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Oneness. Did you get that? There is so much power. I, I, sometimes when I look at this number, when I try to meditate, one just speaks of God in power. One speaks of ability to create. Oneness. If you can become one with anybody, you can do stuff. You see, that's why Amos will say, Can two walk together? God was speaking to Amos. Can two walk together except they be agreed? You understand that? Praise God. Oneness. Number one. Again, look at Ephesians 1. Ephesians um, chapter 4, rather. I'm going to read from verse number 1. Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore the prisoner of Lord Jesus beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called of the Lord. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity, the union in the bond of peace, endeavoring there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all. And through all and you all, one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one Lord, one God. One baptism. You can see the power of oneness. So one is speaking of unity. What he's trying to say here, be united as a church. Be united as a husband and wife. Just come to this place to realize that he called you together by baptism, by faith, by one hope, and be one. Because you have only one God and one Father. It's the Father of every one of you. So walk in love, endeavoring, try. There might be schism, there might be issue, but try endeavoring, that's what he's saying, to keep the unity of the spirit as much as possible. Why? So that the power of oneness will have to be generated for effective creation of that which is needed. Amen. If any two of you shall agree. As touching anything, oneness. Two becoming one. Did you get that? Good. 
I need you to get this. So when you're reading, like I said in the beginning, you get to the context in which you are reading, you begin to see this figure come out, you try to find out. Is it symbolic? Is it illustrative? What is it saying? Is it figurative? What is it that God is saying in this passage? And like I'm going to make you see, when you come to the place you have dreams, and the dreams are coming in maybe once or twice, as the case may be, you should be able to come to the understand that God is saying something to me. So what is God saying? Is that okay? Right, so let's get to number two. Are we okay with number one? Right, you should be able to get that. Number two. The number two. Number two is the number of contrast. This number speaks of opposition, contrast, enmity, division, and oppression. Number two. When you read two, when you see the figure two, what did I say it talks about? It speaks of opposition, contrast. When I use the word contrast, you see, you see black and white. These are contrast. Is that okay? Right. Black and white. These are contrast. It speaks of opposition. It speaks of enmity. And he talks about division and oppression. For instance, if we, if we, I mean, touch that. But you see, if you look at Genesis, the book of Genesis speaks about oneness, unity, God, perfection. Is that okay? When you come to Exodus, you're talking about oppression by the enemy. You come to number two. <laughs> you see that? Number one speaks of God's purpose, intention, oneness, his will, his desire for man, his beauty, his glory, even on that of a man. But that's a man that was supposed to be in place of glory when he gets to number two, which is the book of Exodus, he gets into oppression by the enemy. Are you seeing that? Hallelujah. So look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1 and 2 for instance. Genesis chapter 1 verse number 2. 1 and 2 rather. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God moved upon the deep. Right? Darkness was there to cause a difference. And look at the next thing. And God said, let there be light. And there was what? Light. Separation. Darkness was in place. Light came in contrast. Hallelujah. Look at Genesis 1 verse 6. And God said, Let up the light and the firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. That on the sixth day of creation, there was a division. There was this water separated, 
So number two is always a number for separation, for division, for contrast. Are you following what I'm talking about now? Oppression, enmity, opposition. Number two. Hallelujah. Now you can understand why the man and the woman have to become one. To avoid contrast, to avoid division, the man and the woman have to become one. Are you getting what I'm saying? Right. So, essentially marriage is what breaks contrast. He destroys division. He destroys enmity. Oh, come on. Are you getting this? Praise the living God. Two shall become one because two is a number of contrast, two is a number of division, two is a number of oppression, two is a number of enmity. And so when God decided to say they want to have a family, he said the two shall become one. Light. Oneness, purpose, goodwill. Praise the living God. Are you getting this? Is this too deep for you? Is it okay? Yeah, I told you I'm going to be sharing some things that you should have known, but just how you don't know that you know them. I just want to open you up. So that's number two. So like I said, when God brings in marriage together, he wants to destroy the power of enmity, contrast, division, opposition. So two becomes one. And what happens? Unity, agreement. Are you getting what I'm saying now? And our possibilities, because one is always a realm of possibility, just as God is. Hallelujah. So what is two? It runs in realms of division, contrast, and dislocation. <laughs> two will always disperse, dislocate. You see your bones together, you have an accident, dislocation. So you cut your hand, it becomes two. You know, it's always a realm of contrast, dislocation. Hallelujah. So like I said, Genesis 1 is perfection. But when you come to Genesis chapter 2, you talk about the fall. Did you get that? In Genesis 1 is perfection. But when you get to Genesis 2, is a fall. In fact, in Genesis 2, when man was made of the dust of the ground, that's the beginning of the fall of man. Man was already a fallen creature in Genesis 2 before he partook of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3. Did you get that? In Genesis 1, he said, Let's make mine an image after our likeness and let it have dominion. Right? But in Genesis 2, verse 7, and God formed man of the dust of the ground. That formation was the lowering of the spirit man to the earthly nature. And so the propensity to sin was introduced. So you can see the effect of number two. A dislocation, if I may use the word, from divine purpose. Oh, come on, man. Mm -hmm. Are you with me? 
A dislocation from the realm of divine purpose. That's number two. Because the man that was supposed to be having dominion become a fallen man in Genesis 2. When X was introduced to man. From the spirit to the attic. Dislocation. From divine purpose. And intent. Hallelujah. Are we still here? So we find that Genesis 1 is perfection. Genesis 2 is fall and chaos. And like we said, Genesis 1 is actually the sovereignty of God. Because that was God all the way through. Genesis 1. And like I said, Exodus is a realm of enmity, oppression. <laughs> Book of Genesis, perfection, sovereignty of God. Genesis, I mean, Exodus, oppression, enmity, and, 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 you know, whatever you can think about. Number two. And so, 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The Bible now says, the first man is of the earth. Arty and the second man is the Lord from heaven. Contrast. One is of the earth, one is from heaven. First man, arty, second man, heavenly. Contrast. Is that okay? Praise the Lord. Now number two is often used in the sense of legal setting. And this was very important. Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse number 6. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. These are legal matters. That is to say, if you are a judge and somebody is brought before you, you are not going to pass judgment because somebody testifies against that individual. It has to be two or three. That is why you have the New Testament and the Old Testament to confirm anything that you need to believe in and trust in. It has to be double witness. Look at it again, Deuteronomy 19, verse number 15. Deuteronomy 19, 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity. Or for any sin, in any sin that is seen it, at the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be what? Established. So two stand for establishment in terms of cases. You don't just take any opinion and run with it. Praise the Lord. This is why it is crucial that even if you have a witness in your spirit, you need to seek the face of the Lord. If you have an idea, you need to seek the face of the Lord. If a thought comes into your mind as to what you want to do, what you want to believe, whatever the case may be, you need to seek the face of the Lord. It's very important. Praise the living God. And so, the spirit of the Lord and be a witness with your spirit becomes two. And that case is established. Are you with me? You can't just form an opinion around with it. 
Sometimes what I do, even before I started teaching this, I spoke to three people. And this seems to confirm what I was going to do. There was a flow. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, not one witness is enough to establish a case. Praise the Lord. Are we here? Look at again Matthew chapter 18. Look at verse 15. The same thoughts from the Old Testament is transferred to the New Testament. We're dealing with number two. Is that okay? Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. This is very crucial. Your brother has offended you. What you do, go to your brother and talk. Go to your brother and talk. Sometimes, what you are thinking to be an offense, the brother may not mean it that way. And he said, when you do that, you gain your brother. Why? Because God is interested in that same spirit of unity. He doesn't want division. He doesn't want separation. Go to the next thing. But if you will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. That is a mount or two or three witness. Every word should be word established. Same thing with Eddie Deuteronomy. Did you get that? Now, let me read something for you today so that you can get this. Go down a little bit. And the next verse says, And if he shall neglect to hear thee, call it unto the church, or tell it unto the church, but if he will neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. And now let me show you the next thing that follows that. Verily, very I say unto you, whatever you shall burn on earth shall be burned in heaven, whatever you shall lose on earth shall be losing in heaven. Now, this is not talking about binding devil. You just read it from the top. What he's saying here is, gain your brother. If he refuses, call one or two persons to join you and plead, if you will, with your brother to be united. If he refuses, go to the church elders. Let them talk to your brother. Appealing that you people should unite. Remember Ephesians 4. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. If the brother will not agree, send him away as a publican. Not to belong to the church anymore. Because he's trying to cause division. And so what he's saying here is, if you let the person go, God will let him go. <laughs> you understand that? That's what it means. Whatever you bind on earth, you bind in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth, you lose in heaven. In other words, the brother you reconcile is reconciled in heaven. So the church has the authority to, if you want to, remember the case of First Corinthians 5, where it says, send that brother unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Praise the living God. That was the application of this particular scripture. So this is not actually talking about binding the devil. No. It's talking about excommunication from the church. Whosoever you excommunicate is excommunicated in heaven. You lose your liberty and freedom because he rules through the church. What it means to say here, the church is authority on the earth. Are we together? So we're talking about 
Two witnesses. It can be one. Amen. Let me read a scripture. Exodus 23 verse 1 and 2. Thou shalt not raise a false report. Put not a hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to raise judgment. Can we take in a simpler translation? This is very powerful. You must not pass along false rumors. You must not cooperate with evil people by lying on the witness stand. Now remember, you have to call false witnesses to testify against Jesus. Because you cannot execute judgment without testimonies, I mean, without witnesses. The next one says, you must not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you are called to testify in a dispute, do not be swayed by the crowd to twist justice. You together? That is why you have to be careful what form the opinion you have. Is it because it is popular? Or this is truth? In other words, the crowd may have an opinion, but that may not be justice. And he said, don't be part of that. Because God holds witnesses very responsible and dear. You can imagine that if there is no witness, he will not pass a judgment. Are you sitting there with me? Right. So, he holds the witness so much more in place of trust that what this man is testifying about is the truth. And then he can pass judgment. So let this be something that guides us when we walk in the society. 2 Corinthians 13 verse number 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you in the mount of two or three witnesses shall every word be word established. He's still referring to the Old Testament. That's why I always keep saying you can't really divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament. You can't. Because the principle of double witness and Paul went all through in his writing in establishing the fact of the principle of double witness. It is number two. In terms of legal matters. Praise the living God. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 18. First Timothy 5 18 says, For the scripture said, Thou shalt not nozzle the oars that treaded out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. He's still emphasizing it. This is why you have to be very careful, especially if things are said about somebody. Try to confirm, try to verify. Amen? Are you listening to me? Very critical. Very critical. You understand what I'm saying? You can't 
establish a case against someone if you don't have a double witness. You can't. God doesn't even do that. So, for those of you in leadership, for instance, you, you receive something about someone. Be sure to verify this thing. Don't take the, the statement of an individual and act on it. You misjudge. You miss it. You will not execute justice the way it's supposed to be. This is the power of number two. Praise the living God. Here we find that every case can only be established by the judge with at least two or three witnesses. Look at John chapter 8 verse 17. John 8 verse 17 and 18. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself and the father that sent me bear a witness of me. So two cases or two witnesses are established. Therefore I am who I am saying that I am. You can believe me because there is the principle of double witness operating in my life. I'm bearing witness to the Father, I'm a son of God, and God is bearing witness that I am a son. So you have two witnesses. Jews, you don't have any reason to doubt who I am. Because your law even says it. At the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every case be established. So if I say I'm a son of God, and God is saying, I am a son, then you can't doubt that judgment anymore. You got to believe me. Believe who you am. Did you see this? I mean, this is will guide you in life. So, if you read this kind of scripture, then it gives you the full conclusion that Jesus is who He said He was, because there are two witnesses. Because now you be the judge. Is that okay? And that's why even in 1 Corinthians, take your time to read the Bible, uh, I think chapter 14, the Bible talks about prophesying. And he said, let one prophesy, let the other judge. Double witness. Don't bring out a prophet in the congregation and no one to judge by way of interpreting even your prophecy. <laughs> the law is still playing there. For us to be established and say, well, for truth, this is what God is saying. Are you with me? I was here speaking on Friday when I was writing up the prayer point and a sister called me after the service and said, this and this you said were about me. I was having a problem in my spirit and doubting what God told me and you said the same thing. Double witness. Now you can believe it. God already told you and somebody's confirming what God told you. You can't doubt that anymore. The Lord double witness. Did you get that? So if it's a prophecy that God gave to you and you're doubting and somebody comes to confirm the prophecy, you can be double sure this will come to pass because there's a law of double witness playing out. Hallelujah. Are we still here? Can you see take some more? 
Or you want to go meditate on this? <laughs> Glory to God. I, I'm finding this, this study very interesting because he's opening a lot of things to me as I'm going through it. Very interesting for me. And I pray you get interested in it as well. And it helps you as well. Amen. So we find again that this law of double witness, which is number two, is used in interpreting the reality and verification, if you may use the word, of dreams. It's the established certain thing of things that are repeated when something is repeated twice or three times. It's a way of occurrence, especially in dreams and visions. You know that God is speaking to you. Job 33. Job 33, verse 13. While you thus strive against him, talking about God now, for he giveth not account of his matters. Look at verse 14. For God speaketh once yet twice, yet men perceived it not in a dream, in a vision of the night, when this sleep falleth upon men in slumbering upon the bed. Then he opened the ears of men and sealed their instructions. Praise the living God. Can we take it from a simpler translation? Any translation you want, simpler one. God opens their ears and impresses them with warnings. Go up a little bit. Let's go back to verse uh, 14. Verse 14 says, God always answers one way or another, even when people don't recognize his presence. He answers one way or another. You understand it now? Very good. Now, what's the next thing? In a dream, for instance, a vision at night, when men and women are deep in sleep, fast asleep in their beds. And the next thing says, God opens their ears and impresses then with what? Warnings. Now, when we look at it from the King James, like we said before, one or two times, once yet twice, then the thing is repeating itself again and again and again. It becomes a warning. Sometimes it's not just warnings, it's also a revelation of his intent for you. Like in the case of Joseph. Remember he saw the sheaves, eleven sheep bowed unto him, to one of the sheaves, and then the level stars, the moon and the sun, bow down to one star. You see, it's the same dream coming in different forms. Joseph was so young, maybe to understand the dreams, but his father said, is it true that you are going to rule me and your mother and your, your brethren? The father understood. Maybe because of age, you understood what dreams stands for. That this thing is repeating itself. Is it true? You're going to rule over us. Did you get that? The father got the meaning. So when you're having dreams that are repeating themselves, first time, second time, check it out. God is speaking to you. Is that okay? God is speaking to you. You have to hold it strong. And if you maybe begin to pray it over and begin to pray for strength to go through it, because you see, like the case of Joseph, 
You remember how you have to go through prison, go through pain, go through slavery, all of those things. And that is where you need prayer sometimes. When sudden revelations are coming, that they want to exhort you, want to raise you up. You start praying. You start praying now. It's not that you're praying with fear that it will not come to pass, but the ability to go through when those processes begin to take place. Are you following me? Hallelujah. Some of you, do you dream? Have you had dreams once? <laughs> Hallelujah. And this is going to help you. Let's, let's get an example for this. Genesis 41. Um, we're not read from all the top. Let's just take from verse 30. Genesis 41 verse 30. And here, Joseph is interpreting the dream of Pharaoh. He had a shame, you know, the fathered calf, the lame ones, ate it up, all of those things. Go back and check. And they shall arise after them seven years of famine, and all the plenty shall be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine shall consume the land. Verse 31. And the plenty shall not be known in the land by reason of that famine following, for shall be very grievous. Verse 32. And for that a dream was double unto Pharaoh. Witness. Twice. Double twice unto Pharaoh. Can you get it now? Right. It is because the thing is what established by God, and God will surely bring it to pass. Hallelujah. Did you get this? So, if you have a dream and it's coming to you twice or three times, follow what Joseph just said here to Pharaoh. It is that God has established this thing and he will bring it to pass. The law of double witness. And God has to abide by his own laws in dealing with people. So have you had a dream before? Repeating himself twice? I had one this night anyway. Personal to me. And this second time is coming to me. Because of the information I have to get this morning as well. Double witness. I walk most of my walk with God from this perspective. You see, I've showed you here before. Let's quickly go down to Deuteronomy 13. I'll show you something now. Let me show you how powerful this thing is. Deuteronomy 13, verse number 1. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and give thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, wherefore he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods, which thou shalt not know, let us serve them. Now, the key point I want you to see is verse number 1. If there arise among you a prophet or what? A dreamer of dreams. So a dreamer of dreams is equal a prophet. So if you are good at dreaming, God is operating with you and through you as a prophet. Meaning, if you are a good dreamer, you can know some things about your life. Without a prophet coming to you. Can you get what I'm saying? <laughs> If there arise among you, now, 
A prophet or a dreamer of dream. Now Joseph was a dreamer of dream. As a matter of fact, the whole book of Daniel was written through dreams. So he said, Prophet Daniel. But how was it that he was a prophet Daniel? <laughs> Everything was based on dream. The book of Daniel. I'm going to read a passage for you now. Joseph was a dreamer. I'm going to feel me better. The brother said, the dreamer has come this way again. Here comes the dreamer. <laughs> so it's another one saying, here comes the prophet. <laughs> Praise God. Are you getting this? So if God graces you with dreams, don't play with it. Try as much as possible to interpret your dreams. And I need to, I need to say this to you. Go back, maybe go to the website and then get interpretation of dreams, symbols and interpretation of dreams. When you take that together with what we are studying now, I'm telling you, you can be anywhere and having good fellowship with God. Amen? Okay. Let me show you something. Daniel chapter 8 verse 20. I'm beginning to see how we end up from here. Daniel 8 verse 20. The ram with the soles having two hands are the kings of Media and Persia. Two hands. Did you get that? So here we find that this beast or this ram having two hands symbolizes duality in the rulership of Media and Persia, the empire of Medes and Persia. That's why you see an animal and they have two horns. That's two authority. I'm telling you of how number two works. Did you get that? So, if you have a dream, you are seeing two figures. Learn to understand what God is saying. Your dream is coming twice. Learn what God is trying to say. And I'm sure this study is going to help you as much as possible. Praise the Lord. Now, like I was trying to say, when I say the ex-president, uh, this is the second time he's appearing to me. And I know certainly what he's talking about. Because the first time he appeared to me, I know what happened. This is the second time. So I took it very serious because I know he doesn't just appear to me like that. There's always a purpose. There's always a message. Praise the living God. Are we here? Amen. Now go to verse 21. It says, And the rough goat is the king of Grisha, and the great horn that is between the eyes is the first king. <laughs> is that okay? Now you have the Medes on the page, this, and this is the empire of Greece, Alexander the Great. Is that alright? After the Median patient, you have Greece. And so that's what he's talking about. So when you read of horn, I've told you that before, in symbolic interpretation, when you see horn, speaks of power, speaks of authority. Right? And so when David said, I have exalted my own, but he's saying, you're giving me power. You've established my throne. You need to understand where read the Bible, like I said before. It's a figurative book and historical book based on prophecy. So you don't just read this thing and as if you are reading some novels. No. You read and you see the meaning of what he's saying. So yeah, Daniel is saying, 
when you see that animal came up and they have two horns, it's speaking of the next kingdom that is coming and the Medes and the Persians coming together with two rulership. Is that okay? What am I talking about? The power of number two. First thing is, is disunity, is distraction, is division, is enmity, is oppression. So if you Genesis, all of the sovereignty of God. Exodus, oppression of God's people. Right? And then when you come to the case of legal situation of number two, at the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every case be established. And so two shall become one. Remember that. Instead of being in the realm of division, you're becoming one in marriage. And you follow down. All I'm trying to say, you've got to understand that when you have a dream and it's coming to you two times, God is trying to communicate to you certain things about your life. And if you can interpret those dreams accurately, I am saying you can become a prophet of yourself. Have I helped you tonight? God bless you. Thank you for listening to Dr. David Ogaga. We know you have been blessed by this station. You can share this message with your friends and loved ones. For more information, inquiries, and free downloads, please visit www.davidogaga.org or you can send us an email admin at gkai.net. God bless you.